because I kind of ended up doing this 180 where everything changed. My perspective changed and I suddenly realized, wow, I had made a huge mistake in, in my relationship with money. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Fi Show, but I cannot be doing this without my co-host, Justin. What's up, man? Uh, just trying to reacclimate to the Northeast after getting back from Mexico. Just went down for my annual uh, mission trip, had a good time, great weather. What about yourself? I'm enjoying good weather right now, which is very fortunate of me. Just came up from San Diego yesterday, and now I'm in L.A., for some book tour events. So a lot of fun stuff going on, man. Nice. But enough about us. Let's get to the awesome guest that we have on today. And actually, one of the coolest parts is that our music that we use every single episode, Joel, our guest from Phi 180, and his brother actually created that tune. So I just think that's a pretty cool thing to note. Yeah, you never know where a connection is going to take you. The thing I really liked about this episode is how Joel was living a life of, you know, large, lavish expenses and then just boom, you know, a a literal crash happens and he turns his life around. But let's not give away the punchline of the story. Let's let Joel take it away. Yeah. So when I was younger, I grew up, my household, my parents never made a ton of money. My dad had his own home repair business and he never really made more than $25 or $30,000 a year. So we never had a ton of money, but at the same time, we never felt that deprived. We had, you know, most of the stuff that we wanted. We didn't really think of it as not having a lot of money. But then when I went through college and I got out and I got my first job as a software engineer, and I was making pretty good money. Suddenly, you know, right out of college, I was making $55,000 a year. And I was like, wow, I can buy all the stuff I've ever wanted. It, it was such a change from, you know, growing up, I had to practice a lot of restraint and I had to be frugal out of necessity. And so suddenly I could just buy everything I ever wanted. And so it was kind of like a party, <laughs> you know, it was, it was just, all right, let's, let's, let's have fun. Let's go to town. And so that's what I did for quite a few years. And my wife at the time was my girlfriend. She had a little bit more restraint. She kind of had better money habits, was into the practice of saving very early on, whereas I had never known the concept of saving money. And so I had all this money coming in, all this cash flow. So I was I was just starting to spend it. I, I would go to Best Buy on the weekends and just buy anything that had Wi-Fi on it. I had all the tech <laughs> toys. When we moved into our first home together, which we bought in 2007, which is a whole other story of <laughs> buying at the worst possible time. But when we moved into that house, we didn't have any furniture. We didn't have a bed. We didn't have anything. The first thing that I decided to buy was a $3,500 HDTV from Best Buy because, you know, priorities. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and I bought, you know, you had to buy a PlayStation 3 to go with it at the time because what else are you going to put on the TV? So, we had an air mattress and a PlayStation 3 and an HDTV. And that was pretty much, you know, the first week of homeownership for me <laughs> at the time. But yeah, so I had some serious problems with understanding how money worked. I think it had to do with me just never having that concept of saving and then kind of going a little bit crazy. And at the time, it didn't seem like a problem because I wasn't going into significant debt. 
and I had the cash flow to support it. And I had never had money before. So it was kind of one of those things where it was just different. It was something that I, I never had before. I never, I never had money, so I didn't know how to use it. Nobody, nobody taught me how to, how to use money or how to be responsible with money. And while my wife was kind of like, hey, you need to slow down a little bit with the spending, I just kind of pushed forward. And so she rightfully never wanted to combine finances with me, which you know, she, she was very smart in that regard. I was just about to ask, like, did you guys butt heads? Because it seems like she was at least a little bit financially savvy, but you were just all out going to Best Buy, buying anything with Wi-Fi. I was all over the place. And I think as the years went on, I kind of got worse because I was I started to have to work more and more hours and I was spending more of my time at work. And so when I would get off of work, I wanted to kind of compensate with, you know, fun stuff with spending money. And so we did often butt heads. And so we kind of kept our money separate for a little while. It wasn't until about five or six years ago, when my wife got into a very serious car accident, that things kind of changed for us that my perspective shifted. Because it was the first time in my life after she got into that accident that I realized that I was kind of trapped from a financial perspective. And so I kind of spun around. And that's kind of the story, you know, of why I call like my blog financial 180 is because I kind of ended up doing this 180, where everything changed, my perspective changed. And I suddenly realized, wow, I had made a huge mistake in, in my relationship with money, basically. So I, th I think it's obvious that you figured out that relationship with money. And now you're doing things in a, a more responsible way. But one thing I'm curious about, because, you know, I, my whole life, I've always just been so cheap and on the low end of the spending. And I see people who are spending whatever it is, $100,000 a year, and I just can't wrap my head around it. But at the same time, there's a lot of people who can't wrap their head around what I do. Right. Since you've been on both sides, you know, before you hit that one, do you think there's anything that people like me are missing from people who are spending more money and vice versa? Like, what is it that we're kind of talking past each other on? What is something that I don't understand about people who spend that much money and maybe what's something that they don't understand about people who are spending less? I think it's funny that, that you bring that up because... It's one of those things where I there a lot of the spending I don't miss. I don't miss that much. And I think I I got it out of my system is kind of what I did. I think I I had this really lavish, you know, I bought a new car, I bought a new house, I had all the toys that I could want. Anytime I would want something, I'd just buy it. You know, Amazon was coming three or four days a week to the house. And I would have fancy meals. We'd go to these really wonderful restaurants all the time. We, we kind of were like foodies. And so we'd go out to all these fancy restaurants all the time. But eventually what would happen is that all kind of slowly became normal, right? So what was really lavish for the first year, maybe started to become normal. And so Basically, now what's happened is since I've kind of turned around and reprogrammed, recalibrated my, my money, basically my spending, now if I go out to a fancy restaurant or buy a fancy toy, it really is, it really does feel luxurious, right? And because it's such a treat. Whereas when that happens all the time, all you've done is kind of created a new normal. I think they call it the, the hedonistic treadmill is kind of the idea. And so what it kind of requires is to kind of renormalize. If you eat sweet food all the time and you eat nothing but sweets, you have a palate for that and that kind of becomes your normal. And so if you ever eat food that's not sweet, it, you know, it doesn't have flavor to you. But 
if, for example, now I don't eat a lot of sweets, if I do have like a piece of cake or something, it just tastes so rich because you're kind of tuned differently. If that makes, if that analogy kind of makes sense, it's just a, uh, a different normal. And so I think perhaps what a lot of people will eventually come to the realization if they've been on both sides is that you can be happy at any spending level to an extent, right? I'm not really talking about extreme poverty or anything like that, but to an extent, you can kind of renormalize and become happy at a lot of different spending levels. So Joel, I kind of want to riff off that same thread and you had a post, it was a guest post actually on Gwen's blog, Firing Millennials, and it was about these two starkly different, you can't see me air quoting, but different lives. And I just love if you could kind of get into that a bit. Yeah. So what ended up happening was I felt like I was living this double life where I had my Facebook life. I guess now it would be the Instagram life, but back then it was just the Facebook life where everything was perfect. I had a perfect house and a perfect car and all of these toys and just the perfect lifestyle. We were traveling a lot back and forth, you know, jet setting on the weekends. And so it all appeared very glamorous, like to an outside observer. But to us, what it really was, was spending all of our time at work. I mean, getting up at six in the morning, you know, groggy, downing some coffee, getting in the car, commuting for an hour, getting to work, sitting in the cubicle until six o'clock, and then doing the same commute back day after day. And then you'd get home and you'd just be so drained that all you would want to do is just maybe veg in front of the TV for an hour and hour or two and then fall asleep and then just do it again the next day. So the only free time you had was just this little bit of time on the weekends. That's all the time that you had to play with all those toys and live in that fancy house and live that Facebook lifestyle. I realized that it just, it wasn't worth it, especially, like I said, after my wife's car accident, when I realized that I wasn't really free, that neither of us were, and that we were kind of slaves to all this stuff, it became very clear that we were kind of living two lives, right? The the one that the outside world saw and then the one that we saw, which was mainly just in a cubicle. And so I'm sure like once you make that realization, you didn't just, you know, wake up one day and be like, all right, you know, I got to figure it out. Here we go. We're saving all the money. So can you can you walk us through some of that that tangible like what was that like? What was that transition like? How quick did it go? (laughs) What were the hardest things? All that. Sure. Yeah. So actually, let me pull up some numbers real quick so that I can talk specifics with you. Oh, yeah, because we are spreadsheet junkies. So what ended up happening is when my wife got into the car accident, we kind of realized right away that something was something was wrong because it was such a life-changing event. It was such an, an awakening for us. And her car was totaled. Luckily, she was okay. But we realized like when her work was saying, you need to come back to work right away. And she wasn't ready to go back to work. At the time, she was still doing physical therapy. And we both kind of realized like, wow, we're, we're slaves to a job that we can't get away from. And so we, t- we took a look at our spending. I had been using Mint for quite a few years, luckily. And so I had all of this historical data that I never looked at. So I put it all together and I realized that in 2012, we spent $107,000. And just to give you an idea of what that breakdown looked like, we spent $16,000 that year on shopping. So this would be like Target, Amazon, things of that nature. We spent $13,000 on food. So this would be just like restaurants, eating out. That's over $1,000 a month, right? That's, that's a huge amount of money. 
let's see, travel. We spent 12 grand on travel that year. And this isn't even like luxurious travel, what you guys are probably thinking. You know, you're, you're probably thinking uh, international travel and, and stuff like that. This was domestic travel, just going back and forth, visiting some friends and family. And to be honest, it was just tiring because we would try to do every other weekend because we were on a, uh, a schedule where we got every other Friday off. So we were just exhausted traveling all the time and spending all our money. I'm just looking at other things on here. Our bills and utilities and miscellaneous, you know, recurring expenses were 12 grand a year. Our car costs, our automotive costs that year were 11 grand. And it just, it just keeps going, you know, like there's just so much on here that just boggles my mind because now, now that we're on the other side and we've kind of reached financial independence, a normal year we'll spend between 25 and 30, 30 ish thousand dollars a year. So it's completely night and day. But Joel, aren't you depriving yourself? (laughs) You must be starving, right? (laughs) It's funny. When you don't have any debt and your your house is paid for and your lifestyle is paid for, twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars can actually go a really long way. Uh, especially, you know, once you do that recalibration that I was talking about. So what ended up happening is right around the time of this car accident, a friend of mine sent me a Mr. Money Mustache article. And this was just happened to be at exactly the same time. And I just remember reading it and just being so moved by this concept that I had never thought of before, which is that you can just save enough money to quit your job in your thirties. Like that, that blew my mind that that was a thing that you could do. And because, you know, I never knew it was an option. And suddenly we kind of just looked at each other and we're like, we should try to do this because we knew we were both very blessed in that we had pretty good salaries and not a lot of debt to start with. And so we kind of were in this really opportune position to try this out and see if we could make it work. And so I remember she got a $10,000 check from the insurance company. So this was like the value, the depreciated value of her car was like worth $10,000. And so instead of getting her a replacement car, we decided to put that money into Vanguard, into VTSAX. And that was like our our first start into investing. And so then we just decided to be a one-car household and carpool and make that work. And then every month, we would try to find one thing. We kind of turned it into a game where we'd try to find one thing that we could optimize that month from an expenses perspective. And that's how we gradually moved forward. So it wasn't like a an overnight shift, we slowly increased our savings rate and decreased our spending over the course of, I want to say three or four years before we really hit our peak of saving. What were some of the tough ones? Like, even if it's not the biggest dollar amount ones, I'm just curious, like, what were the things that like, you know what, that actually took some, whether it was learning a skill or that it was just, you couldn't give up or any of those type of things? Yeah. So the biggest skill we had to learn was how to cook because neither one of us knew how to cook really well. And we were spending a lot of our money going out to eat two times a day. So we had to slowly acquire this. And it took a lot of practice and a lot of work. And, you know, if you don't like the food that you cook, (laughs) it's really hard to stay in the kitchen and keep cooking. So there were, you know, I, I wrote about the idea of secret shame pizzas that we had to order quite often because what we cooked didn't turn out all that right. But that was something that was not easy. And so I can tell you, if you're somebody who doesn't know how to cook, this is something you just have to keep 
trying and keep finding recipes and practicing until eventually, I think it might have taken us four or five months before we started to like what we were cooking and started to actually enjoy the meals. And, and then you get to a point where you actually enjoy what you cook better than the restaurants. And that's a pretty awesome feeling because you know, like, wow, I can, I can make really delicious food. Let's see here. I have a post on the blog where I talk about each month this snowball that we created and what we spent or what we reduced each month in that game that I was talking about. So looking at month one here, we canceled our cable TV. That was like the first, you know, the first month, the classic thing that you do. And we got rid of Hulu because we already had Netflix. And so we decided to break one of those off. So that was the first month. We also enjoyed the reduced costs of not having the additional car insurance and car registration of the second car. So that was that was helpful. So the month two, we went and we uh, finally canceled our, we had monitored alarm service for our house that we didn't really need and never really used. And so we canceled that. And we also got rid of our water delivery service and just got a purification system instead because it was a lot cheaper than having water delivery. Water delivery. Uh, yeah, I think that's <laughs> called the tap on your sink. Yeah, we were we were oh, living man. a luxurious uh, lifestyle here. We also lowered our cell phone data. So I was a big cell phone data hog. And so that was a painful one at first. We had to learn how to, how to lower that. And this goes on. So each month, it was just another thing that we slowly started doing. We stopped our we had theme park tickets that were auto renewed every every year and we, we let that expire um i built a home gym instead of going to an expensive gym we ended up slowing our internet down a little bit and that was one that we didn't even notice and then we started doing other things so we'd started changing our behaviors so this one was a little harder where every time we would go into a store we would have a list so if we didn't have something on the list we couldn't buy it at the store Right, so you it would stop all the impulse spending and stop all the like the impulse buying. And we took the frugal woods. They have this idea of the seventy two hour rule, where you write something down that you want and you you dwell on it for seventy two hours to see if that's something that you really need or really want. And a lot of times, what you realize is after a day or two, you don't actually want that. And so you kind of gives you a chance to figure out what you really want or what you know what you actually need. So so it was pretty cool. That helped us quite a bit, slowly but surely, change our spending habits. Just to give you a little summary here, at the end of the first year of doing all these changes, we ended up finding $1,000 of additional money in our budget, essentially. So $1,000 a month of extra money that we found. At the, at the end of the year, we found $1,083.51 of extra money hidden in our budget. The post on my blog that details this is called uh, Our Financial in 180 In-Depth, and it kind of just shows the month-to-month snowball growing and where this money was coming from. So it's just like a lot of these little things that were just inflating our budget. And once we started adding them all up, they, they were small individually, but they added up into something very substantial. So Joel, I'd love if we could kind of take a step back and do just a broad stroke of like what you and your wife were making at the start. I know you said you were spending 107000 at the peak, what you cut it down to, and then how fast you were able to achieve financial independence, because 
the people listening can't see you like you're a young guy and you're retired it's it's pretty crazy for to the outside world yeah so we we graduated college in 2007 and that's when we ended up getting our first job we bought our first house which was a big mistake buying a house at that time because that was right before the market crashed and when 2012 was one of our worst spending years that's when we spent $107,000 and to contrast that 2015 which was after we turned things around, a few years after we turned things around, we had reduced our spending down to $34,000 a year. The To give you a timeline, I believe the car accident happened in 2014, the end, or 2015. The very end of 2014 was the car accident. So I would say 2015 was the first year we started turning things around. And that was something that, you know, at each year we'd gradually keep increasing, increasing the savings rate. And by 2017 we had increased our savings rate to over 80%. That was a little hard. That, that was actually a little bit outside of our comfort zones. So we ended up, the, the second half of 2017 and 2018, we've kind of lowered that down to a more comfortable savings rate. But it was something that was like, we wanted to make sure that it was something that we could do. And so we really pushed ourselves and kind of, it was like an exercise in going out of your comfort zone, if you will to kind of see how far you could push it. Because you can always add things back later if you miss them. It's really just discovering what things are important to you. And so to give you an idea of salaries, we were out of college. I think we were making in the 50s, our first jobs. Uh, we were both software engineers, so we we're making in the 50s. And I think right before I quit, I was just, just about to hit the six-figure club. So the span 50 to 100 on the salary over the course of 10 years was my working career was 10 years. And your wife is still working? My wife is still working right now, not because she needs to, because financially we, we are, we're where we need to be, but because she actually really enjoys her job right now. She's working with some very good friends and uh, she knows that if anything changes or if that job becomes unbearable or just stops being fun in general that she could walk away. But right now she is she is still working and definitely enjoys what she's doing, whereas I was miserable in the last year of my job. And I think that's awesome because, you know, when we talk about this stuff, we try to always tell people, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to retire. And I think that's really interesting how just in your own story, in your couple, you get to see both sides of the story. Somebody who's miserable in their job and decided, you know what? Yeah, I do want to quit. And then somebody who has that independence and could quit, but decided, you know what, I love my job and I'm still going to keep working. So, Yeah, that's a big part of it. Financial independence doesn't have to be about quitting your job. I think the retire early portion gets a lot of press and, and headlines and everything else because it's so sounds so spectacular, like this idea of, of retiring in your 30s. But in reality, what, what you're really doing is you're just having the freedom to do whatever you want to do. And very rarely does that look like what most people think of as retirement. It does sound pretty cool, though. So, Joel, were you 33 when you retired? Uh, I think I had just turned 34. 34. Okay. So, yeah, that's a headline right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it, it literally is. I was, I was recently in CNBC and that was the, the headline was he retired at 34 <laughs> because that's, it does, it sounds impressive. But in reality, I'm not sitting at a beach or anything. I'm working on my blog. I'm writing a book. I'm working on music. I actually have my brother in the other room right now working on some tracks we're, we're doing. Uh, I was just actually recording some music about half hour ago. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm busy. I'm doing a lot of a lot of cool things. It's just on my own schedule and none of it is pressured to make money, you know? 
that's kind of the cool part. I could kind of go at my own pace and I don't need to be, you know, doing whatever I need to do for profit. And I don't know if this is a personal question, but are y'all planning on having children or? So, yeah, that's a, that is a great question. We don't know. And so what we've done is we have a line item in the budget to where we have that option. We have it, we have it budgeted, <laughs> but if we decide that that's not going to be the route that we go down, then it just becomes more buffer for us, more safety buffer. It just turns into a Tesla or it could, yeah. or just, you know, I, I just <laughs> like the idea of not, you know, not spending it. You know, you can have a bigger budget than, and then just not need to spend those things. So, but yeah, that's something we don't want to box ourselves into right now. We don't, we don't know where life's going to take us. I know that five years ago, my life was completely different than what it is right now. So I don't want to pretend I know what my life will be like five years in the future. So I just like to leave all my, all my options open. Speaking of children, I know like a lot of parents, they listen to stuff like this and they try to figure out how they should handle their kids. Cause on one hand you want to take care of them. On one hand, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to spoil them. And I, I'd heard on some, another podcast you're on, you mentioned that you and your wife are both lucky and that your parents had set aside money to pay for your college. I'm just curious if mm -hmm. you had kids, how do you think you would handle that? Like, do you think that they unknowingly did you a disservice by, you know, paying for your college and maybe that didn't give you the understanding of finances or just how would you recommend parents handle college situation when deciding whether or not to pay for it? It's a tricky situation because I think there's, there's merit on, on both sides. I know some people who had to work their way through college and they said it was very character building and that they got a great appreciation for money. I know personally, I'm very happy that I was able to get out of college with no debt. So that was huge to me because I have a lot of friends who are still paying off in their mid to late thirties student loan debt that, you know, these things are like, can be like mortgages to people. I like the idea of having that money available. I think if I have kids, I would have the money for them to go to college so they wouldn't have to take on any debt, but I might not let them know that I have that money <laughs> set aside. So maybe they, uh, maybe they still have to figure things out, try really hard for scholarships, maybe do a little work on the side, but I would know that I have it there for them so that they wouldn't have to take on debt. So I'm curious, like something that we've always been talking about on this show and a lot of the questions that Justin and I have asked you today is about just the optionality that FI gives you. So I'm wondering like what the ancillary benefits of FI are now that you have so many options in your day-to-day -day life. Yeah, it's fun. It can be a little overwhelming though, right? Yeah. <laughs> so because suddenly, and this was a big shock to me, when I first got into this new lifestyle, when I quit my job and after the novelty wore off after a few weeks, I realized that I had no excuses anymore for any of the things that I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to get into great shape, great physical shape, and like come up with this great workout routine. I wanted to do all this crazy stuff with music that I had never had time to do. I wanted to get awesome, you know, become awesome playing the guitar and all these other things. And so suddenly you realize that it's not necessarily the job that's preventing you from doing those things. <laughs> it's like building up the motivation to actually do them because it's also very easy to just sit and watch YouTube and uh, Netflix and just, you know, have fun and, and be social. So it, it still takes discipline and hard work. I think what's interesting is that that discipline and hard work directly leads to happiness. And I think what I realized when I was working the day-to-day -day grind is that I was always unhappy because there was something else that I would rather be doing. 
right? So there was somewhere else I'd rather be when I was, you know, when it was four o'clock and I would look at the time at work in the cubicle, I didn't want to be there. I wanted to be working on music or working on, you know, different side hustle ideas or working on stuff at the house or, you know, maybe going on a walk outside in nature or cooking an awesome meal. I just didn't want to be at work. And so suddenly you kind of realize you still need structure in your day and you still need activities and things to work hard on, but they, it can be overwhelming because you have this world of choices that you maybe didn't have before, right? Because so what a normal job gives you is a lot of structure and some people really do well with all that structure. So what I ended up having to do was spend a few months to create my own structure for myself. What does a productive day look like for me? What what time do I wake up? When do I get my workout in? Do I spend time at home the whole day? Do I go out, you know, to the library or to the park? How how do I feel productive and what works for me? And it took a lot of trial and error, and this is something that I think I think everybody could benefit from even if you love your job. I think everybody in the in the world could benefit from taking like a year sabbatical. I know that Noah and Becky did this for Money Metagame. Mm-hmm. They took a, they called it a gap year. And I think like this is a great idea for everybody, even if you love a job, because you discover things about yourself when you step away from the nine to five and when you move away from a traditional job that's taking up all of your energy and all of your time, you, you suddenly get all of this creative freedom and your mind kind of resets into a state that I I feel is more like how my mind was when I was younger, when I was a, a teenager. I, I kind of had, haven't felt this way since I was much younger. So it's very refreshing. I can say that. And when you had this world of choices, like you mentioned, open up to you, was there any in particular passions or interests that came about that you didn't even know about yourself that didn't pop up until you stopped working? Well, I thought I knew what I would want to be spending my time on. And it turns out that not all of that was right. So I thought I was going to be writing a lot more for my blog. But it turns out that when there's a million fun things to do, sitting down and being diligent about writing for your blog isn't necessarily the most exciting or enticing thing to do. But it was when I was at work and wanted to escape, right? So I I was actually a lot more productive writing for my blog when I was still working full time. I thought that I would want to be doing a lot of music production in terms of actually producing music. And it turns out that I actually just like writing it a lot better instead of producing it. So I've been working with with other people on the production end. And so it's little things like you start discovering about yourself, what you want to spend your time doing is different than what you think. And when you don't have a lot of free time, you always idealize, oh, if I had no job, I know what I'd do. I'd spend all my time reading and sitting and playing video games or whatever you think that you're going to do with all that time. And then it turns out when you get the chance to do that, it's probably not what you thought it was. There's really no good way to explain it other than you don't know who you are when you have all that time and when you don't have the confines of work. You're just a different person. So Joel, I want you to finish this sentence for me because I love it. Okay. (laughs) My worst case scenario. Oh, is everybody else's everyday scenario. Yeah. I just love that quote. That's like the best quote ever. So that there's a funny story behind that. That was the quote that I came up with to convince myself to quit my own job because I was nervous and I had been just complaining about how bad my work life was and how stressed I was at work for 
just so long. I, I would say the last year, almost all of 2017, I was just so stressed. My The program that I was on went over budget and behind schedule and uh, everybody was having to work unpaid overtime. People were, they were taking away vacation time. It was pretty miserable. And so I, I remember just complaining to my wife one night that we, we went on a walk and I was complaining to her how stressed I was and how I wasn't myself. And I was yelling at people at work, which is something I never do because I'm usually a pretty laid back guy. And I was still nervous to pull the trigger because we weren't a hundred percent at our fire number, right? We were, we were getting close, but we weren't a hundred percent there. And my wife was encouraging me to quit my job. And that quote was one of the things that I came up with to help push me, give me the courage to actually take the plunge. Because I realized like worst case scenario, right? I, I go back to work just like everybody else does all the time. So it's really not, uh, <laughs> when you look at it that way, it's really not that scary. And now I wish I had stepped away a year earlier, to be honest. And it was, it was one of the better decisions that I've made. I'm a much happier person now. The stress has finally left my life. And it, and it did take quite some time. I, I want to say it took four or five months for the stress to completely leave. But I, I am a much happier and healthier person now than I was when I was working full time. So I, you know, that's, I think if people are in a position to be flexible, if people are in a position where they're, they can design their lifestyle in a way where if they end up having to go back to work, it's not the end of the world. And maybe they can even design a lifestyle where they're making some passive income doing other things or side hustles or just anything else that they want along the way. It can really reduce the fear factor as opposed to wanting to have a hundred percent certainty before you pull that trigger which is very hard. You know, I was talking with JD Roth at FinCon and, and the quote we just kept saying over and over again was fear is expensive, right? That's the, uh, that's the quote we kept saying is, is fear is expensive, right? So <laughs> the more certainty that you want, the more sure you want to be that nothing's going to go wrong, the more money that you need, the, you know, the more expensive that becomes. Yeah, I think that point just drives home kind of like what you were talking about earlier with cutting your expenses. You know, you could try, you could take away things that you didn't want to spend money on. If you really needed it, you could put it back. You know, same thing with work. You can step away from work. If your life starts falling apart, this, you know, the stock market goes into some ridiculous crash. You can go back to work. Like all these things can be temporary if you want them to be. And I think that's a people don't want to take any steps because they're so scared and they want to do so much math and they want to check it a hundred different ways. But just you know, put your toes in the water and try it out. You can always turn around. Yeah. And, and I think that it's important to try to design a lifestyle where, where you have some of that flexibility baked in. So for us, one thing that we really were happy about doing was paying off our mortgage because we didn't have that bill looming over us every month. So suddenly our lifestyle is a lot cheaper than most people's. And so the, when people see, oh, $25,000 a year, how do you do that? Well, it's, it's a lot easier when, when you don't have a mortgage payment. And so that, that takes away some of the fear because I know that, you know, if, if things get tough, all of my expenses, a lot of them are variable, right? So they're not fixed expenses. So food, entertainment, gasoline, electricity, a lot of these things have a variable component in them where you can control the amount that you're using and what, how, what kind of food are we buying and how much are we driving our cars? And so there's, you have control over some of these things, whereas your mortgage payment, you can't 
choose to just pay a little less on your mortgage you know it's it's a fixed <laughs> it's a fixed cost so it's a it's a little bit harder <laughs> you just get to choose how long you get to keep living in it i mean you can pay less but yeah. <laughs> exactly so when you don't have a lot of those fixed costs your life can kind of be and this is just my personal preference but it, it can seem less less scary well, Joel, we have had a blast talking to you, and thank you for kind of dropping all this knowledge on our listeners. And yeah. if there's someone maybe who is in your position and they want to get in contact with you, where's the best place to do that? Yeah, so my blog is phi180.com. So if you go on there, there's an email button. There's a place where you can connect to us on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, so everything's on there. And I really do try to respond to a lot of readers if they have questions, if they have things that they, they want help on. I really do enjoy hearing from the readers and everything else. So I try to be active on there. Awesome, Jill. And one thing we always like to ask our guests is what is your number one tip that you would like to give people who are on this journey? What's your number one tangible tip? That would be that financial independence is not a single number. It's a continuum of benefits. So don't think of it as, oh, I need to hit a million dollars in my bank account. And if I have 999,999, I'm, I'm not fi and I need to keep working. But if I have, you know, somebody gives me a dollar, suddenly I can quit my job. It's not binary like that. It's a continuum of benefits. And so I wrote the, the milestones of fi post about that particular idea, which is that you gradually gain more and more benefits as your savings goes up. And so you might be able to retire, you know, when you are 80 or 90% of the way to that fine number, you don't necessarily have to have a specific dollar amount. Your, your benefits, the power that you have over your money grows with you. So with that comes this idea that you should take your time and find a good work-life balance if you can and enjoy the journey. Instead, you know, if I could go back and tell myself to do it again, I, I would probably do it a little slower and enjoy the journey a little bit more along the way, realizing that I just didn't have to hit this one specific number <laughs> to to have all of this power that we have now. Yeah, for somebody who's retired at 34 to go back and say they wish they would have done it a little slower. It's a very, very powerful statement. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's about finding that finding that balance that, that works for you, I think, is important. And I think my wife's done a little bit better job of that than I did, but we each kind of got there. We were we were pretty far in the wrong direction, so I think that we had to compensate by pushing really hard in the opposite direction to even things out. Well, I will definitely keep the Phi continuum in mind as I go through my journey. But Joel, I have a question for you, and this is the wild card question. Okay. So you're not prepared for it. I'm not prepared for it. Justin's oh, man. not prepared for nope. it. Oh man, I'm just gonna hit you with it. Okay. I'm All ready. right, Joel. So I know you sing. What is your best song? <laughs> and if you would give us a snippet, that would be awesome. If not, I'm going to ask you a new question. <laughs> oh, boy. So when you say best song, you're talking about like a song that people maybe would know, like a cover, like me just singing a cover song kind of thing? Or You must have one song that you just rock it. Oh, <laughs> you're going to American Idol. You got one song, one chance. Oh, geez. What are you, what are you pulling out? Oh, geez. <laughs> I definitely wasn't prepared for this one. <laughs> Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Scent of the pine, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. 
It's a new life for me, and I'm feeling good. <laughs> so there, there's a snippet. <laughs> oh, man, you rocked that, Joel. <laughs> oh, I'm man. feeling good. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling real good. <laughs> you really got me on the spot here, guys. I was totally not warmed up or prepared for, <laughs> for that. Hey, that sounded awesome, Joel. I don't think anyone's ever put a singing snippet in a podcast before. Yeah, man. That's awesome. <laughs> Breaking the ground. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. just... Uh, don't worry, I'll edit you know, it. Clean it up, put a little <laughs> reverb. <No. laughs> wow, Joel. Well, you really rocked the stage, and thank you so much for that. So, Joel, Justin and I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show today and really showing that this five journey is possible. Like, you cut your spending by $70,000 a year, hit financial independence in like four years, you were just the testament to Phi. <laughs> so thanks again for coming on. Oh, thank you guys for having me. It was a really fun conversation. I feel like I really got to let loose a little bit here and just, you know, be completely honest with you guys and, and share a lot of great details. So hopefully your listeners will enjoy it. Yeah, Joe, this is always a safe space for people like you. So thank you for coming on and sharing that story. Thank you guys. Wow, Cody, another great episode. Joel's story, again, a different, unique perspective on the whole journey to financial independence. Yeah, and I love how his blog was called Phi 180 because him and his wife literally went from, what was it, like $110,000 a year they were spending down to $35,000. And the fascinating thing was that Joel said he didn't even notice his quality of life diminish. He said it even probably increased because he started to value things more. He said he got his taste buds back. He didn't go out to these fancy restaurants for $200. He wasn't going on these lavish trips every week. He was making things special by not spending money all the time. When he did spend money, it was a lot more special of an occasion. Yeah, it actually reminded me a lot of a principle that my mom always tried to teach me when I would see other kids like always getting crazy presents. Like it's Easter rolls around and all of a sudden they get this huge present. And she's like, you know, if, if you had Christmas every day, Christmas wouldn't be special. And that's kind of what was happening with Joel. He's being able to buy himself stuff every single day to the point where it didn't get special. And beyond that, you know, he commented on how people from the outside, they see the good stuff. They see your life through Facebook and Instagram. But what they don't see is the strain the work takes on you, the work that you have to put in to get that lavish lifestyle. They were putting in crazy hours to maintain this lifestyle. And so by stepping back, not only do they not miss it, but they gain back some of their own personal time. And I loved how Joel kind of contrasted the his real life. Even though it was the same exact life, he's contrasting his real life with his Facebook life. So on Facebook, he looked like a baller. He's going away every weekend. He's having fun after work, having drinks. But he's working 12-hour days. He's completely miserable. And he's spending the money so that he can kind of just cope with how miserable his life is at work. And I thought that's just so interesting because you do. You see the Instagram lifestyle. You see the Facebook lifestyle. It's just the best thing ever. And you keep chasing that thing. You keep chasing that thing. And Joel was like living this double lie. And it was cool how he kind of just opened up to us and gave us the real deal. And it made it easy to resonate with him because he's just a normal guy. That's one of the really cool things I like about this show is that we can really showcase like real deal people. This isn't someone who started a tech company and made a billion dollars. This isn't someone who lived on $10,000 a year. Joel's just like super relatable, which I think really sends that message across nicely. Another interesting thing to me about this is you see a lot of parallels between, I think, what we see with like professional athletes. So they come straight out of high school sometimes or, or whether it be one year of college and instantly they're handed all this money and they just don't know how to handle it. And so in Joel's case, like no one would ever feel sorry for him for coming out of college, not really having any debt and having a decent job waiting on him. But he wasn't prepared for that. Like he was not ready to handle that money. And that's the reason why he jumped into the excessive spending 
And sure, you know, it took an unfortunate event to turn that around. And, and it's a good story now, but it just shows how important getting that education to people early, like while they're in college, before they actually start making that money, or maybe even in high school, before they start taking on college debt, getting that education early so that when they're faced with an actual paycheck, they know what to do with it. And so, Justin. Whoa. What is that, Cody? I think it's a call to action, man. And so today's call to action comes directly from Joel's playbook. And what him and his wife did was they picked one thing every month. They didn't just go cold turkey, go from 100K to 30K spending. They focused on one thing every month and decided, hey, how can we possibly get this down? And if they couldn't, how can we just analyze this and at least understand the trade-off we're making? So Justin and my challenge to you is to look at your budget, look what you're spending on every single month, and see where you can cut. So maybe this month it's cable. Maybe next month it's Netflix. Or maybe it's even something bigger, like downsizing your house or finding a cheaper apartment. Any of these levers that you can pull to drastically reduce your expenses is just going to add a rocket pack to your path to financial independence. Awesome, Cody. And for the listeners, if you want to continue with Joel's story and get more in depth with how his life has turned around and what that continues to look like as he journeys off into financial independence, you can get all the details in the show notes at thefyshow.com slash FI180. Also, we really encourage you to join this Facebook group that we've got going on. It's one of the best places where anybody's welcome. We'll talk about any kind of topics. It's at thefyshow.com slash community. And thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. Show.